And welcome to Rebuilders this week. Well, we've always endeavoured to be real here and not have any pretenses and uh, that's where we're at right now. This big week uh, of podcasting here at Rebuilders, I think we outlined some really deep stuff that's really key and I think it's been keeping a lot of people uh, trapped. Liddy is still composing herself <laughs> after it. Um, uh, but we talk about really how we're moving to into this crisis individualism. We talk about a concept uh, which is new, I introduced today called the second secularism. And uh, I think there's some really important deep stuff in here as we get a diagnosis of where we are. But what's important is also who we follow, who is God, who's the God of redeeming, delivering. And we're excited for you to dig into today's podcast. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both going? I am waiting with bated breath. Um because just before we came on air, Daniel just began to reel off facts about uh, World War II and 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 uh, I need an outlet. Well, he's, you know, we <laughs> talked a lot <laughs> about his uh, sub sub podcast of uh, I think it started D Day, but I think you, what you're just sharing is going to go to the end of the war. But just uh, I can't say anything, but just incredible facts. Um, Yet to be produced. You're still working on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm sure the uh, Real Builders uh, listeners, there'll be a subsection of them which just wants to hear just you. I I did actually come across a World War II podcast. I'm sure yeah. there is them. That's, I'm sure there's It's up to like multiple. episode 480 or something. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's the heights you're going to have to hit. I'm up to like episode 15. <laughs> is it good? Yeah. It is quite good, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like full, full in depth, deep dive. Oh, it's yeah. so deep. If you're going to do it, you you got you got to do it. You right. got to do it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Got to yeah. do it well. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. What so is that, this our episode? What are we up to in our episodes? I actually don't know. I think we just ticked over 100. Oh, um, a hundred. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, Congrats! Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well done. Yeah. Well, I've got some water here to celebrate. Yeah, <laughs> I've got <laughs> a coffee and also some water. Yeah. Yeah. Had my son involved this morning. Oh, good. Oh, yep. Yes. Yeah. I did see that um, one of our listeners or watchers suggested Darjeeling tea. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. I haven't had Darjeeling tea for years. Well, crack it out. Let's buy some. Yeah. Is it, is it a black tea or is it a. Yeah. 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 So um, Darjeeling's a. But you have it with milk, though. I think yeah, you can yeah, read yeah. white. It's a, it's, yeah, a, right. it's a black tea. Yeah. Yeah. But is it black tea? Is, the, is that. I've always thought black tea is without milk. No. Uh, well, well, look, you're tapping into yes. cultural. And also no, in okay. that oh, in wow. one context it is. Like if yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, how, how are you going to have your tea? Oh, I'll have it black, thanks. Yeah. But that will also depend on the type of tea that is being made for you. Like, you know, a peppermint tea isn't going to be, oh, I'll have it black, thank you. You gotcha. just have it as peppermint tea. Gotcha. But there is also, you know, black as opposed to green tea. which as in the leaves. Yeah, yes, well, yes, or yes. maybe how it's produced. I actually don't yeah, know yeah. Yeah. It, mm. the exact details on that front. Yeah. There are some outrageous people out there, like my mum, who have peppermint tea with milk. Oh, no, I've seen that, yeah. Interesting. It yeah. is interesting. Uh. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to try it. <laughs> or oh, could no. be living. Could no. be living. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no. oh, well. Uh, so the tea podcast is also um, yes. going to be released in the next couple of months and we really look forward to that. Our first episode is going to be exploring the um, inherent differences between green and black tea. Mm. Oh, it's going to be exciting. Uh, so last week it was a great episode. Yeah. 
great to start exploring some of these ideas. Um, we have had a lot of good feedback as well. So thank you mm. for those um, of you who have been in touch. So Mark, last week you teased the idea of a, a third individualism and you've termed it crassus individualism. Yeah. Let's maybe take a step back and figure out why we are here. Yep, summarise. Yeah, bit of a summary. Yeah. Let's get an orientation of where we're at mm. and and let's go from there. So we're looking at discipleship is really the broad sense and discipleship is discipling individual people and we're looking at the changes that have happened to people in the world, particularly I think in the developed world. And we looked at the sort of economic period um, of neoliberalism, which probably you could argue the idea is older, but you could argue goes back to probably the beginning of the like the 80s um, mm -hmm. or 79, 80, and uh, I think sort of goes until recently um, and how this has shaped how we think about the world. So I, I outlaid three individualisms. Yes. First individualism, I took right back to the sort of beginnings of the modern age. You can took it back even to the 18th century, which is when people moved away from a feudal system, um, working on the land, we were very much defined by, say, tribe, where you were from, uh, who you were connected to, and then people began to move to the cities. And, and, and there's a sense of anonymity, freedom, social movement uh, that came. And one of the ways that they then made up for the lack of meaning and connection to other people was to create what some have called mediating institutions or mm -hmm. intermediate institutions. This can be anything from... Masonic lodges um, to uh, coffee houses uh, in London were a huge thing to various different sort of social groups and political groups and religious groups that come together and in a sense are not as small as the individual, not as big as the state. They're sort of these mediating. They normally have often have a vision behind them. Um, they're built for a purpose. Um, you know, you could even say the nuclear family is, is in some ways a mediating institution. Mm. Um, so you saw in the beginning of modernity – the passing of an old order, this chain, great chain of being, um, and into more of these modern forms of, of mediating or intermediate institutions. Hmm. Now, in many ways, these last uh, really for a couple hundred years. Um, and, uh, you know, you could see in a place like around here, uh, if you went out on a Thursday night in the 1950s, you'd find all kinds of different mediating institutions meeting from teetotaling groups like the Rechabites to, again, <laughs> Masonic lodges to different church groups to different ethnic groups meeting together. Um, all of that was happening and that was a normal part of the social fabric. So that, that sort of uh, cushioned some of the isolation that people were concerned uh, that was coming with the beginning of the modern age. Mm. But then things begin to change and uh, that sort of whole cohort of those mediating institutions, and you can imagine if I had a, a whiteboard here, uh, I'd write up the top like the big things like the state, uh, the nation, empire, whatever, right up the top, big corporations, the really big entities in our world. And then down the bottom, I'd write the individual. And then in between, I'd write all these different mediating institutions. These begin to fray though in the second individualism. Mm. As the second individualism, I think, kicks off around the time of um, uh, uh, like probably the late uh, or early 80s um, as mm -hmm. a new economic order, and we'll tease into why a new economic order changes these mediating institutions. But the second individualism is very much defined by fleeing from these intermediate and mediating institutions. Yeah, okay. So Robert Putnam wrote a famous book called Bowling Alone, and he talks about how bowling alleys in America, which are a classic example of a 
that sort of mediating institution. The town would come together, bowl together, it would build relationships and so on. And it had a, had a goal. It was a very low-level goal of playing bowling, but also it knits at a social fabric in a community. Mm-hmm. And I think what's worth noting is often we talk about the decline of the church uh, in the last sort of 30, 40 years in a lot of Western contexts, but also what must be mentioned is that occurs alongside the also decline of those similar type mediating institutions of yes. Masonic lodges, of unions, of, of educational organizations and, and different things that people did have also declined, rotary and so yes. on in terms yep. of, of membership. Um, so that's very much marks the second individualism. The second individualism then is less around coming together and forming these mediating institutions as it is around self-expression, mm-hmm. uh, not being tied down, uh, not committing, um, and you see this presents a huge challenge to the church in particular, mm. and this is intensified as time has gone on. Um, did I mention the movies? I preached on this this week, yeah. and I mentioned in my sermon, so I forgot what I said in my sermon I said in this podcast, but I did I mention about the Godfather movie? No, we were talking uh, about A Few Good Men and yes. The West Wing last week. Well, more movies. Yeah. Uh, Mark Fisher makes the comparison to illustrate this point um, uh, between The Godfather, which came out in 1972, which is a crime movie about crime gangs. Uh, but that movie is very much defined by, in a sense, that that mediating institutions. Here is a, a group of uh, families who, who migrate from Sicily uh, to America. And in a sense, in America, they set up these mediating institutions, uh, which is in a sense is a way of connecting with their migrant experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even argue that the mafia um, is a mediating institution. Um, and a lot of history around the mafia actually says what it is, it was an attempt to take some of the sort of like medieval structures that you found in Sicilian culture and then adapt them to the modern world. Yeah. Um, you also have in that movie lots of meals that are around tables. It's very much a drama around family brothers versus each other, sons, fathers, daughters, cousins, the connectivity of a migrant community. Uh, And it's very much about crime, but it's really about how that dynamic plays out in this very deep knitted world of relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's thick ties, thick relational ties. Uh, Fisher contrasts this with then Michael Mann's movie, which came out in 1994, I think it was, Heat which is set in Los Angeles and it's a really interesting sort of like depiction of Los Angeles and it really uses Los Angeles as a backdrop to a hugely atomized society. Mm. You know, you've got all these individuals, no longer do you know the background of all these people there from different ethnic groups and different backgrounds, but it's irrelevant in heat. It's really about these almost atomized individuals coming together simply for the goal of profit, for doing these jobs. They don't really know each other. They don't like each other necessarily. Um, And it's a story really about complete disconnection and the breakdown of relationships. There's a line Mm. that um, his name's Neil McCauley, I think is the main character played by Robert De Niro. Interesting, Pacino and De Niro in both movies. Mm. Um, And um, But uh, the De Niro character called Neil basically has this line where he says, don't have anything in your life that you can't walk out on in 30 seconds if you see the heat or the police coming. And that's sort of a code that he gets from another guy in prison. But really what Michael Mann's doing is saying that's almost now the mantra of 
the world. It's yes. it's the neoliberal second individualism world is don't commit too closely because you're actually going to limit yourself and your ability to self-express. Yes. So it sees these mediating institutions as things which um, undermine our ability to truly flourish in life. And yes. so that's, that's a big key thing. And that's presented huge, huge uh, challenges to uh, church. Because yeah. church has operated and been reshaped. Uh, if you look at the church in in the feudal period, it mm. very much fitted that social uh, sort of understanding. In a sense, it shaped that cultural understanding. It 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 adapted during the sec- the the sort of first individualism. You know, mm. by like we've talked about things like Wesleyanism and stuff like that. Did with his discipleship structures and these second spaces that people could get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now this huge challenge of the second individualism. Now a lot of my writing has been really, if you if I am honest, um, about that challenge. But things are changing. But I think to understand crisis individualism, you need to understand that crisis individualism or the third individualism is a result of the second individualism starting to play out and play out into a kind of disaster. Is it an evolution of or a reaction to? It's an evolution of. So it's the natural consequences. So one way to understand this, and I'm going to drop a new term. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to introduce a new term to people. Uh, so get ready. We're ready. <laughs> good, good. Pens are poised. Pens are poised. I'm literally holding onto my seat. Okay, so we use the word secularism. If, if you can trace the history of secularism, secularism very much comes about during the Enlightenment when there is this reaction to a lot of the wars of religion that happen in Europe. And this political vision comes about of creating a public space where you can do politics and social interaction and trade that is not defined by religion. Mm-hmm. So secularism is in many ways this political vision of the Enlightenment coming into the public space and instead of having battles over Protestantism versus Catholicism, what you can actually have is conversations around politics and the life of the city and social things and the new operating system. So it's like they pull out the operating system of religion and they say secularism, the new operating system in the public square is reason, Mm. rationality and the enlightenment principles, the scientific principles. And the thought is that if we can bring these into the public space, we can then, you can still have your your religion, but do it in your private space, go to church on Sunday. But when you're in parliament or when you're uh, in the public square or when you're talking to the fishmonger down the street, uh, you operate in that space. So we, we can, we can come together and not have wars and have a flourishing society through this. So it's, it's a kind of disenchantment of the public space. So secularism also is not just attempting to get rid of um, religion. It's also attempting to bring this, secu- uh, this scientific viewpoint to uh, even things like folk religion, superstition, and so on. So a lot of it was seen as this battle against superstition in the public space. I think most people are going to understand that that principle. Yeah. Can I just clarify? Go for it. Um, with secularism, would you say that this is something particular to the West? No. Okay. It starts in the West, um, very much so. Mm-hmm. But then if you think about how it then goes out across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so China is a country which is secular. Um, North Korea is a country which is secular. And they've been various different, you know, Mexico went through a declericalization um at one point. Uh, and so primarily probably more um, 
in outside of the West, it's been uh, communicated through communism sure. and Marxism. Yeah. But Marxism, which does start, you know, Marx is writing his thesis and theories or theories rather in the British Library. So it does start in the West, but it goes across borders. So there's still, um, you know, you probably could argue that, say, North Korea is the most secular country in the world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but origins are in the West. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I think most people understand that concept of secularism, disenchantment of the public space, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and Charles Taylor writes his book, you know, A Secular Age, and he talks about that process of disenchantment. Well, I want to drop a new secularism. Oy. So I sort of came to this, this thought after reading um, a comment by William Davies um, in his book, The Limits of Neoliberalism. And he makes this comment, it's sort of a line, and it got me thinking. And he says, basically, neo, uh, William Davies sees neoliberalism as, and I'm going to have to tease this out, so I'll say his line and then I'll tease it out. Okay. William Davies sees neoliberalism, our current economic order, and this is hitting around the time the second individualism takes off. He sees it as the disenchantment of politics by economics. What are you talking about, William Davies? Okay, if you think about what is politics, politics is the life of the city. If you go back to its original roots in, in Greek, it's the life of the city. It's the citizens of the city coming together to decide what sort of society they want to live in. And, you know, Aristotle talked about sort of humans being a social or political animal, and often they're translated in either way, that politics is the social life of the city and the political life of the city. So if you think about in a society, there's all this stuff happens. So if a first secularism happens and say religion and superstition are taken out of the life of the city, the public square, there's still the life of the city, there's still politics. Mm-hmm. And so many things that you saw is that after the age of religion in the West, then very much politics became like a religion. Okay, so what Davies is saying is economics has gone beyond its boundaries of just the market and it's invaded the whole of life. And Mm. what that has done is kind of disenchanted the whole of life. So, for example, you think about now how the individual thinks about their life. You think about the way that they think about it of being productive, you think about it as the way that people measure their steps and how many steps they walk each day. These are the kind of measurements we use for like grain production mm. like 70 years ago. You think about the different ways in which people do online dating and the idea of romance. A romance was this hugely sort of like romantic, enchanted thing, even for people who didn't believe in God. And how that's moved in our time from sort of that to almost a contractual economic interaction between two people organized through data. And so you see politics, like there was this moment, if you look in the 90s, I remember going to stuff when I was very, you know, just studying in ministry as a youth intern and going to different things where people took around university, politics had just disappeared. You had in music, people lamenting in the 90s, uh, you know, of how politics had become so anodyne and non-political. You had this sense where it was almost this, this, economics that had taken over the world became the answer that we don't need to do politics anymore. We just need to make the economy work well. And then we just get on with the rest of our lives consuming and being sort of human as economic agent. And I think what's happened is perhaps because Christians have sometimes, and perhaps more so in certain countries than others, been less aware of the effect of economics, uh, we've missed this one. 
Mm. So economics has come in and seriously desacralized, if you like, the culture. Mm -hmm. Economics has made nothing sacred. If everything can be bought, nothing is sacred in a culture. And I think this raises a really interesting question. You can have someone who is not down with the first secularism. So they're like, you know, I want to have a belief in God. But then in a sense, they can also simultaneously be down with the second secularism. They're afraid of commitment. They want to get what they want out of church. Mm. They want a God who delivers their sort of visions and aspirations for the good life. So I think there's lots of people where the church has not has has pushed back against the first secularism, but then has been blind to the ways in which the whole of society has been disenchanted by this sort of economic framework of how we see life. Oh, that is a lot to get my head around. Um, Can we maybe break it down a little bit? Uh, Maybe starting with the idea of competition. Yes. So – to understand this, we need, as you're 100% right, we need to break it down. So one of the first things, and Davies then talks about uh, competition coming into the whole of life. Now, we understand that when you go into the market that you uh, are competitive. If you open a burger restaurant yep. and you've got another burger restaurant seven stores down, you are in competition with that store. If your service is not as good, if your burger is not as well constructed, if your advertising is not good, uh, you're probably going to lose out in the competition with that other burger joint. Now, that's classic. We understand that. Mm. What Davies says is throughout a lot of history, in a sense, or what he's saying, or this is, or maybe this is just me interpreting, that um, we understand that, that a country may be competitive with another in terms of its economy. Um, so, for example, Britain was the dominant economy up until sort of World War One, and the hits between World War One, the Great Depression, the gold standard, and World War Two saw America take over in a in a global competition um, for who's going to be the sort of economic powerhouse in the world. What happens is, as economics disenchants the whole of social life, is that comp- competition then gets into everything. Yeah. Individuals begin to see themselves like companies used to see themselves, to be marketed, to be presenting a face to to others. That individuals see themselves in competition with each other. And I think it's I think it's this is probably hard for people to grasp, but it wasn't always like this. Mm. There was a sense of group solidarity, of a tribal identity, of a, a regional identity that, that that is completely broken down as society becomes disenchanted and people are competing with each other all the time. Mm. Now, if you're competing with each other all the time, what that also means is that you have to own failure. Yeah. So (laughs) if you have an aspirational life presented to you and you don't get that in a culture which is much more about solidarity, well, this is us, the man's against us, or we're working class and that's what the big bosses want, or this is our ethnic group, or this is our regions always looked down on. If you've got none of that and it's just like, no, you're in competition with everyone and here's the awesome life. And you just think about it. Think about the pressure. Here's the awesome life. Here's the the, the, the job. And it's not just having a good job. It's having a, a, a job which gives you money that enables you to do things, which is also incredibly fulfilling, but also not too stressful. Mm. Uh, we get all the perks. 
Secondly, physical health and fitness is completely competitive now. Like you're a high performance machine. So, so what you see in the beginning of beginnings of neoliberalism, you begin to have consultants come in and they begin to try and cut the fats on organizations. They're like, how can you be more efficient? Mm-hmm. You know, my dad worked for a university and he was retrenched in this period because consultants came in and they were basically like, well, how do we make these universities more competitive? Mm. And and so that principle then in the last 30 years has gotten out of just the economic realm. So it went from like companies, but then it went into like government, Mm -hmm. but then it went into community organizations. Um, You know, and you can have say a little health service somewhere, which is really wrapped up in the community and spends time with the patients who come in or, and and then all of a sudden they've got to hit numbers and and data and KPIs and they've got to market themselves. And this pressure comes, teachers, teachers, have more and more pressure. And so we're seeing more and more pressure everywhere. And and this then creates this thing that that then goes from just the community organizations into the individual. Yeah. So health now, like there's people who look at the health and the hacks and the whole strategy. Really, really interesting question. Oh, and I'll come back to that. That's, that's, that's <laughs> going to be a whole thing. So, so the individuals, there's how many steps I did. This is how many hours in the gym. This is how many things I did this. Like this is what the kind of measurements have never been done in human history, only in this time to people. But then there's your relational life, your romantic life, like all of these things, travel, how many countries have you been to? All of this is this great competitive thing. Plus, we're also marketing ourselves all the time. We've got to market ourselves to other people, whether it's in conversation or on Instagram or whatever. There's this marketing. So you are like a company startup that is trying to break even. And the pressures that someone who feels doing a company startup is what people feel all the time. Is it any wonder then that there is this complete ambient anxiety everywhere in our culture that people are feeling? And yet so many people just push that back onto just us, just a mental health issue. Yes, it is a mental health issue, but no one looks at the systemic reasons that this is actually going on because competition has now it, it gone beyond its bounds of where it's just meant to be and gone everywhere. Mm. I mean, <laughs> listening to that, I so inherently feel that Um, and I'm sure that we'll get into this as we as we go along um, in this conversation not necessarily today but there's almost this um, this frustration in me of being like well yes I I see that that's what's happening but you know how do you what do you do to break free from that you know like I I feel it so deeply in in so many spheres of life yes, um, and see it as well and playing out yeah. with my peers yes. and um, like even, you know, my parents, like people of multiple generations. Yes, yes. it's everywhere. Um, yeah, but. Yeah. Well, let me give you these seven hacks. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. I'm ready. And I have an app where you can measure <laughs> yourself every day. Um, and you can do it against other people too and you can become number one in the world and not being competitive. Um, but I mean, so, sorry, just to add one more thing, you're hundred percent right. Like, I think we need to stop a second and realize how pervasive this is everywhere. Yeah. Like you think the person who is, you know, say comparing themselves because of their physical fitness or they don't like how they look or they're beating themselves up. That, that's an example of this. The person who is sitting there looking at their coworkers and looking at feeling inferior, that's an example of this. The person who's virtue signaling online about how more moral they are about the latest issue, that's an example of this. The person reacting against the current 
social moray online and virtue signaling to their other friends because they're more reactive to that. That's an example of this. This is like a kind of mold which has gotten all throughout the structure and has not been named. And I think this is one of the deep, deep reasons of why uh, we're heading into crisis individualism. But yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I look forward to exploring that one a little bit more. Now, you've already mentioned uh, the idea of disenchantment. Is there something more that you would yes. like to explore on that? Yeah. Well, one thing I would like to say is one of the key ways that disenchantment comes in is that it's interesting. If you look at, like, you could say that for many people, like the movement of romanticism in many ways was an attempt to try and sort of create something which connected with the religious impulses that wasn't religion. Mm. Art, music, dance, romance, nature, grandeur, all these things, you know. And people like Edmund Burke talked about the sublime, this sort of like almost this trying to find a sense of that which takes our breath away, mm. you know, like the symphony, you know. And so you see as the West secularizes, there's also this converse or uh, conversant like, you know, move into that sort of – it's like trying to re-enchant the world without going all the way back. And that stuff disappears. I mean, you just look at now people complain there's no new music. Do you know what I mean? Romance is dead. I went to a national park, but I had to pay and there's like 27,000 cars there and all these people taking photos of it to show their friends back home. The, you know, theatre is down 35%. Oh, I've read, you know, since COVID. Like there's all these ways in which the stuff that even that stuff that people looked at, they see something's disappearing. But the main way I think, or one of the main ways is a move from a covenantal concept to a contractual concept of life. Mm. A covenantal is this bond between people. Like you look at how people talked about friendship, people how wrote letters to each other. Uh, you look again, even that, that's, that sense of romance, <laughs> that was such a big thing of how many songs, if you go back 20, 30 years, were romantic songs. Um, that sense of, of, of art being this thing that you just did. Mm. But now this contractual thing comes in. So art becomes a business. Uh, romance goes into this exchange between two economic units of individuals. Um, and, and even church, church, which is meant to be the example that flows out of the covenantal relationship between God and his people becomes contractual. What are you going to do for me? Mm. I'll never forget years ago sitting with someone who just said, well, I think church is a lot like a shareholders meeting and there are members and members are like shareholders and they should have their say and they should, you know, I was thinking, Matt, this is like, seriously, this is how you think about it. And you see people moving. Well, that church is not giving me what I want. They, they go through the different things. I was into this, you know, new reformed and now I'm into, into this movement. I'm then over here, I'm doing this like little small church and how, like it's just nothing against any of those things in themselves. But I'm just saying that there's a sense where people are moving on quickly and flipping through things like they are products because we have this contractual reality. It's mm. like a mobile phone contract um, that you contracts originally like 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 were based a lot on trust, but then contract sort of law comes in when you can't trust people, so there has to be penalties. Yeah, and so that's what like that sort of invaded the whole of life. Now there's this contractual thing. Well, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? Is constantly there, and that just disenchants life, mm. and, and 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 actually makes it miserable. Mm. And that becomes more about consumerism. At which any human will always fail, will always fall short because yes. you're trying to people's expectations continue to increase. People don't deliver on time, whatever, 
and that happens across all spheres. So that, cons- yeah. which is a, a, I think, a specific nuance to covenant. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. Which I don't know. I think in in light of you know what we've been talking about with the, um, the the contours of the move of God that's happening, yes. it feels very uh, counter. Yes. To that. Yes. Um. The next one. Yeah. So we've talked about competition, disenchantment, and financialization. Oh yeah, I mean just thrilling stuff. Financialization. Oh. <laughs> okay, so so one of the senses that people have at the moment is that they sense, like you say, crisis individualism, and I've tried it on a few people, and I tried in this episode, and people, like, it resonates. People are like, oh yeah, my goodness, yeah. I've seen that since 2016. One of the things that people inevitably push back, point back to, will be the rise of social media. Mm-hmm. And the way that social media has changed things, and and is that true? 100%. We've talked about that. But you need to go back one step. Um, Shoshana Zuboff talks about in her book, The Rise of Digital Surveillance, cult, Capitalism, whatever it is, um, you know, that in many ways, the platforms that emerge are actually reacting to pre existing things in the culture. And I think that's true. One of the things that that changes that happens with neoliberalism is the way that the economy was structured. And I gave a sort of history of this. If you want to go back and hear my sort of very off the top of my head history of the economic order since World War II, go back to last week's uh, episode. But one of the things that is that the West begins to run into this problem in the 1970s where you've got inflation, you've got low growth, and the economy needs to be stimulated. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that happens is the sort of economic order that went from, say, 1945 to the early 70s was very much based on you saved. And if you saved up, you might be able to buy a house. And then, yeah, think about that pair of trousers you want to buy and and, and shop around and, and have your little savings and go and pay for it. And don't pay for it on credit because it was actually hard to buy stuff on credit. Mm. Like there wasn't all these credit cards. Something happens with neoliberalism is where the one of the stimuluses to the economy was financialization, which is basically um, this way of profiting from debt. I'm going to try and do this in the simplest way okay. possible. Profiting from debt. Mm-hmm. So what happened was we began to realize that if before that, you know, the bank, say you got a bank mortgage or whatever, that was on that local branch. You often met with the bank manager. You had to prove, you know, you'd put your suit on and you're trying to prove to them that you're a responsible person who can save and make the payments and you weren't some sort of, you know, absolute wild person who's just going to run off to Bali and, and um, you know, do whatever. Uh, so that changes. And, and actually what happens is the banks start to make money off the debt that you accrue. So they start to then put that on these markets and people like make money off that and they're chopped up into these little bits. And then there's people who bet that you don't even know, bet against the fact that you're going to pay your your um, debt back. Mm. So basically what happens is we talked about black boxes a few weeks ago. It's yeah, like yeah. your money, not just from your mortgage, if you've got a mortgage, but your car payments, your mobile phone, your gym membership, your credit card, all of this is used to stimulate and financialize the world. So this is this has become huge business in the world. Like a huge part of the economy is the debt that you're accruing and other people playing with it. So we've thought about traditionally a lot of societies saw debt as bad. And even in Islamic culture, debt is bad. In scripture, there's injunctions against debt. Mm. Like like I remember a friend Alan Hirsch saying, not many Christians read about what scriptures actually think about debt. Like it's really interesting. So 
there is this sense that the world then flipped from debt is bad to we want you to get into more debt because the more debt you accrue, the more that stimulates the economy and the more we can play with the debt that you have. So there's, there's kinds of like ceilings. So if it's first mortgages, we've got to create more debt, right? This radically changes then what it is to be a human being because you have to be convinced to go into more debt. Mm. So we will, okay, like I'm just going to buy a, I'm going to buy a little hatchback car. I don't really need one. I'm just going to buy it and save it. No, no, you, you need, so you're not just, be, so this is where it goes beyond consumerism. Consumerism is, hey, you could be powerful and buy this car. Financialization is that you buy this car, you could be powerful and that's going to stimulate the economy. So give into your base instincts. Mm. So what happens is the entire economic model now is people going beyond the bounds of reasonableness and actually finding themselves buying stuff, getting involved in stuff that they can't afford to. Mm. So that changes then really how we view what is the desires that we have inside, what's our will, what's our wants, what are we lusting after and coveting? Mm. <laughs> like, so literally to put this in the basest form, you have an economic model now where it's profitable to make you covet and lust after things that you are not meant to have and you can't afford to have. Yeah. So this is begin to change how people view the world. So they don't see things long-term. They live in the moment. They don't see things as worth committing. They don't see the consequences of things. Now, again, a lot of this happens too in a time in the economy where there's been low interest rates. Yeah. So we, we, there's a thing called the Commonwealth Games. It's like the, the Commonwealth version of the Olympic Games. Yep. If you're outside of the Commonwealth, you've probably, probably not heard of it. Uh, but it's like all the Commonwealth nations get together and they have their own mini Olympics, basically. It was a big thing going up as a kid. It was yeah, like, you yeah. know, it was a big thing. So our state it's of Victoria- Australia always won. Yeah, because it's like Australia <laughs> just dominates. Yeah. You know, it's the one, it's like the Olympics, but Australia wins everything. <laughs> I think even like it's like Malta is almost like all like Australia, yeah. Maltese Australian. So it's like, it's Australia just dominating everything. It's the Olympics we can win. And we love, and we love that. Um, but we, we just had our state was meant to have the Olympics, in, I say the, the Commonwealth Games in 2026 and just canceled them because debt repayments, the interest rates have gone up. We can't afford to do it anymore. Yeah. So that's a classic example. Obviously we were doing the Commonwealth Games as a state on massive debt that we can no longer afford. Mm. So crisis individualism is when the bills start to come in. Yeah, okay. Secondly, it's when you realize that you are just tapping on stuff. So, so okay, so think about it. That's financialization. Then what you have is then social media comes along, internet shopping, Amazon platforms. So the economic model is just buy stuff, just sit there, just tap on the screen, just say yes all the time, just do stuff all the time. So I don't want you to produce anymore. Don't go to a factory and make anything. Just sit there and consume and consume and consume and I'll use the debt that you're accruing. This fundamentally changes what it is to be an individual. Yeah. And I think very few people have actually thought about what this, what this means. And so I think this is one of the factors that is pushing us to, because there's a ceiling to debt. At some point, debt's got to be paid back. And there's an economic cost to that, but there's a spiritual, moral character cost to, cost to that. And one thing that just staggers me is a lot of the books which have written about character and, and formation have not looked at this component that the model of our culture for the last sort of 20 years has been massive debt accruing and just say yes to everything. And we haven't made the connection of maybe that's not good for our spiritual lives. 
Um, yeah, this is really breaking my brain open <laughs> a little bit. Um, let's go to the fourth point. Yeah. Um, which is from experientialism to exploitation. Yes, from experientialism to exploitation. Okay, so I'm sort of going to bring it home here. So what that means is the first individualism, the fear, because it was the beginning of the economic age, was that humans would be brought down to just pure functionalism. You're just going to be a cog in the wheel of a factory. You're just going to be someone tilling the soil and you're just part of this massive machine that is society. Mm. You look at Fritz Lang's Metropolis, incredible movie. Yes. Worth watching, classic. I think they just tried to remake it, but they couldn't afford to. (laughs) (laughs) I think it went broke. Um, But you've got this image of society of there's a little elite at the top who enjoy at the almost at the top of this building and then underneath them is this whole city of just people who are like pushing like, you know, like they've almost become like the machine. They're pushing pulleys and, and wheels. And, and that was the fear that the human's individualism would be lost in the machine. So it's really about production, mm. right? The second individualism is a fear of a human sort of like atomized and repressed. So therefore, you need to self-express. And the way that you could do that in a sort of like society, this mass society, was to consume things. So you don't like the Levo 501s that the majority of people are buying. You can go and buy this bohemian jeans from that little outlet over there. Or you don't like this mainstream, you know, hit. You go and buy the alternative tune from over there. It's this sense of expressing yourself through consumption. This is when that comes in, that neoliberalism you start to buy. But what the third individualism is, is the individual reduced to dysfunctionalism because it's now about exploitation. So first individualism is production. Second individualism is consumption. But the third individualism is exploitation. And so all these myths around individualism of the individual like breaking free and breaking free of what other people think and finding the truth in themselves, where it has landed us is actually in an economic, social, cultural, and spiritual dynamic where the average individual is exploited. Now, I, I, I think I've told this story before, like, and, and I just always think about it. I think of, I was catching a plane in Australia. We were waiting on the tarmac and there's just this girl next to me. She's got perfect nails, perfect hair, perfect everything. And everyone would have seen it. We've all done it ourselves. And she just was tapping on the screen with her perfect nails. And it was just this, as she's just scanning through like, like at high speed through uh, Instagram, she would look at a person, an influencer, she would click on it and on the influencer they had like the different like links to the what the bag cost or whatever, she would click on that. And she just was doing this. We were sat in the time for like 15, 20 minutes, it was a bit delayed and she's just like. And I remember just thinking, it's like this is like those images I've seen of like a chicken hitting one of those things in those oh, experiments, yeah, yeah. like Pavlov's mm-hmm. experiments. And I, this, is, this is exploitation. And I think partially what we've done, and I hinted at this last week, is if our solution to this is just, and I put my hand up as someone who has said this, if it's just like, oh, the culture's a bit seductive over there, stay away from it, or, well, you need better Christian habits, or, well, you need to be more formed, all those things I say yes to, but if we miss the dynamic that there is a culture-wide exploitation happening here, it's not just counterformation. It's counterformation, but it's more intense than that, that it's actually exploitation. I think we're going to 
uh, we're going to miss something here that's going on. And I think mm. that's where you ask the question, like, how do I get to the depth of it? Because yeah. you know what we ask? We go, how do I get to the depth of it? Yeah. So the danger is in response to this excessive individualism of the third individualism, we just go, well, you as an individual must do this. Yes. Like, what is the collective response of the people of God to this? And I think you're right. Going back to, I think one of the moves of God that he needs to do, or he's he's not, doesn't need to do, it's not me to say what he needs to do. It's actually that that is, I think, going to happen. And perhaps we're seeing the first spring misty rains of it is actually there needs to be a move of God amongst the people where we begin to pray because there is a spiritual dynamic to this. Yes. This is a stronghold. Yep. This is a stronghold. Yeah. At the beginning of Exodus, you know, Pharaoh is not named because Pharaoh is symbolic of an anti-God, anti-creation, anti-flourishing order that keeps the people of God exploited. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a link here just in case anyone thinks that I'm saying the, the slavery that the Israelites and other people ex, ex, had extreme situations of that through history is is exactly the same as what I'm talking about here. But there is an exploitative function that our society is benefiting from, but it is starting to fall over. Mm. It's starting to fall over. You know, and you think about now, like you think some of the biggest industries, big gambling on mobile phones, big porn. It's industrial, industrial level. Uh, the increased use, you know, big pharma companies increasing the medicalization of marijuana, which has seemingly gone beyond medicalization and it's now, you know, ma magic mushrooms. At first it's like, oh, we want to do this as a crime reduction thing or as a sort of like medicalization thing, but it's increasingly just becoming a way of, I think, medicating a society and the pain that it's feeling because we've entered into a crisis. Mm. And huge profits. And massive profits. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know uh, how many listeners might be uh, sitting here and feeling like, oh, I've, I've had the blindfold removed from my eyes, but I'm certainly feeling that um, myself. And there's a level to which um, I'm kind of angry and frustrated yeah. that I have unwittingly kind of bought into a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, and I wonder as as the people of God, you know, uh, the, <laughs> we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and, mm. um, you know, darkness cannot exist where there's light. What what does it look like for us to respond um, and start to, to look to God for mm. a way to rewrite these scripts? Well, I, I think the good news is, the good news is, is that God's plan is always operating in the background. Mm. And the people of God have found themselves in, in situations like this throughout history. Um, I just want to, so I want to say I want to say one thing. It's it's really interesting because this is running into a crisis at an individual level, but I think it's also running into a crisis at a cultural level. Mm. There was an article in our news.com.au yesterday and it was about like I think there's this trend now on TikTok of like slow Mondays or something like this. Like, okay. like so like, you know, it's for work from home people and and just do what you want on Mondays and if you just want to start at 11 a.m. and do that and if you want to go for a walk with your dog and stuff like that, do that and it's like to help your mental health. Okay, great. But it's essentially just for white-collar workers because no one's going to say to the guys at the power plant like, hey, guys, just 
Just Mondays, just, just come in. Monday. You know, like I, I know there may be a short circuit and the entire system may break down, but just just rock, rock up at 10, grab a coffee, go to the gym on the way in. Like no one's going to say that. No one's going to say to the emergency paramedics, like oh, calls on Monday. If a call comes in at 7 a.m. on Monday, don't take it, guys. Um, you know, no one's going to say that to, to the people running the internet routers. Do you know what I mean? Take, <laughs> take the morning off because there'd be, there'd, be there'd be a stampede of like indignation. Um, so there's a sense where this stuff is rubbing against our reality that we need things to happen to continue to live the life that we're leading. Okay, so what I mean by that? Um, again, another thing from Mark Fisher, he, he talked about that teachers – are on the cutting edge of this because on one hand, they have students coming to them who've just been told, do what you feel, do what you want, who mm. are experiencing this crisis individualism. Then on the second hand, teachers have also got to get grades. They've got to make sure that they're producing functional workers to go and run the power plant. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you're a teacher, Liddy, you're nodding yeah. your head. <laughs> and yet they're the ones, and often teachers also, whose parents have completely flipped over onto the Second individualism, just do what your kid, do what you want, kids. My little, my little prince or princess can just do what they want and they can do no harm. And so as society's like telling people what to do is bad, order is bad, yet please teachers do that. You're the only ones who has to do this. And then you get like 27 parents ring you up the next week because, you know, you told off, you know, little Johnny or something like that. Um, does this ring true for? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so teachers have got to entertain and connect with the pleasure-seeking desire of students to be entertained. Dealing with this concept of boredom, which mm. the second individualism has amplified, um, yet at the same time, you've got to make sure that exams are passed, grades are met, yeah, kids are growing. Now, I think Fisher talked about that as teachers, but I think that's true for churches. Churches find themselves on the cutting edge of this. There is this element. You know, I, I go back to all of Wesley's stuff and Second Spaces and I read it and how Wesley did these incredible structures for the first secular, uh, first individualism. But then often when I read the material, it often comes to the fact that Wesley had this system of discipline <laughs> at the same time. Whereas if you didn't, you know, if you were living, there were people who were doing domestic violence and they weren't then invited back on Wednesday to come to the society because there was discipline. Mm. And and he actually had a system of discipline. So in a sense, no one wants to talk about it in church. And I'm not saying we have some ticketed system like Wesley did where the income to small group on, on Wednesday because you were sinning that week. But I am saying that we are called to form people. And I think that cutting edge that teachers feel that Fisher pointed out, I think is also true of us at the church. Mm. So again, let me just go back. People listen all around the world to this. Yeah, this is a big one. But I believe in God and his renewing Holy Spirit that comes. And what it will do is it will uh, this crowdsource this sucker. Like, <laughs> like there are people who are going to have ideas in all over the world and, and that thing will start to bubble up from the, the, the bottom. But for those, those, those answers to come, first of all, we need to be dependent upon God. Yeah. Um, we need to be dependent. And by the way, can I just say, there are people who are in HR departments, there are people in Christian schools listening to this, there are there's many industries that people like. We know that there are people in politics who listen to this podcast who are like going, yes, I see this. So I believe that the people of God, following a God, God has answers and God always has a way. Mm. And it's interesting too, in, in, in Exodus, just to make a point in Exodus, what Moses goes through 
in his personal life is a prequel to what then happens to the corporate life of the people of God. Yeah. So what the worst thing we can do is go, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm a failure as an individual. I've got to face this all by myself. So just to individualize this and put the pressure on ourselves is just doing what the problem is in the first place, individualizing everything, putting pressure on ourselves. But with God, Moses' life is in the hands of God. And God is shaping Moses' life, even in ways he doesn't realize. And part of what Moses has to do, just think about it, he comes to the mountain, he sees the burning bush, and at that point, his eyes, in a sense, come open to God is guiding his life. From the minute he was put in the river, to his, his working through the Egyptian aristocracy, to his getting frustrated at the injustice in his land and doing that and sort of like uh, this, this commits a crime, kills someone really, mm. that there's a sense where still though, there's a point where the lights go on and he begins to see how God is working in his life. And I wonder if what the, the touch point for us at this moment is people who feel that sense of what you're feeling, like, man, mm. I'm in this, man, this is so massive, man, this is the entire order of the culture seemingly against me is... Where's the burning bush? Mm. There's a burning bush in your midst. Mm. Change your, your vision from the vision that the Israelites were just seeing in a sense of, of the Egyptian, Egyptian order against God. But God is at play building a new order. Um, and I think that's where we need to turn our eyes. That's good. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, we have our subscriber chats that we're just about to record after mm. this episode. Um, this week we're going to do our subscriber chats a little bit differently and respond to perhaps a question or two that have come in from our subscribers. So if this is something that you might be interested in, I encourage you to subscribe. You can do that by heading to rebuilders.co and, um, yeah, subscribing to the mailing list there. We're going to give it a go for a while and see how it goes. See you next time. 